remember thinking like it's something that I want to do and it's something I've always wanted to do but what are you thinking you idiot <laughs> how can you possibly do an Olympic campaign with you know under what three-year-old a two-year-old and a three-year-old but um then um you know you I then I looked at the problem from the other side and I thought well how can I make it happen I remember um, my husband, who's uh, a boyfriend then, Chris, just looking at, at some news on his phone one morning and he kind of said to me, oh, you know, windsurfing's back in the Olympics. And I remember laughing at him and saying, you know, like, what are you talking about? That's um, that's crazy. And then, yeah, him, him kind of being like, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. And just being absolutely devastated. When you're a little older, you become a bit more aware that oh, dad's kind of kind of a big deal. So um, yeah, and then I can also remember um, you know seeing him with his medals and yeah, it was as soon as I had kind of an awareness of that, it was something that I knew I wanted to do. Welcome to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and today we look at kite foiling, and more specifically, one person's journey to the elite of female kite foiling. It's a journey with plenty of speed bumps, broken dreams, and broken bodies, as well as renewed hope of achieving an ambition of going to the Olympics. I really enjoyed this interview with Justina Kitchen, not only because of the stories along the way, but also because of how energized she is to have been given another chance to compete in the Olympic Games. I really enjoyed this interview with Justina Kitchen, not only because of the stories along the way, but also because of how energized she is to have been given another chance to compete at an Olympic Games. It's something she's always wanted to do in the same way her father, Rex Sellers, did very successfully back in the 1980s. But now as a mother of young children approaches it in a different way and with a different perspective than a decade ago. Justina talks about growing up in the sailing community as the daughter of Rex Sellers, her switch to windsurfing and being around some of the big names of the sport, missing out on the 2012 London Games, and then setting her sights on Rio before the class was dropped from the program and then controversially reinstated and her acceptance that going to an Olympics just wasn't meant to be. She also talks about having a family and then the sudden reigniting of her Olympic dream what that has meant for herself and her family, and also offers some advice for others interested in kite falling. And like all guests on the program, Justina tells the story of her worst wipeout ever. If you'd like to share the story of your worst wipeout or send in feedback, then please email michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Right, enough rambling. Let's roll the interview. Well, joining us on the show now is Justina Kitchen, who last year finished 10th at the Kite Falling World Championships and then went on to finish 5th at the European Championships. At the same event, she also teamed up with Lucas Walton Kime to finish 3rd in the Mixed Relay, which was making its debut at the European Championships. It was a significant result given mixed kite falling has been included on the program for the 2024 Paris Olympics. Justina has her sights set on Paris, which will be a third tilt at competing at an Olympic Games after previous attempts to compete in windsurfing, and she does it as a mum of two young girls. Uh, well, welcome, Justina. Thanks for joining us. Hi. How are you, Michael? I'm good, thanks. Hey, I mentioned the Paris Olympics in that introduction. How often do you think about it? Um, well, I think it's always uh, good to keep uh, keep the goals firmly in your sights. So I'd say it's probably quite a regular, a regular thought, daily, weekly. Did you feel like that opportunity to go to the Olympic Games was lost a few years ago? Um, oh, I think that it's always a journey, um, you know, getting to events such as Olympics and World Championships. And I feel like, you know, it just kind of wasn't on the cards for me and various things happened at various times and so it just uh, was one of those things that wasn't meant to be so I guess yeah it was a bit of a lost opportunity but um, opened other doors in my life so yeah it's kind of all just a long winding road. <laughs> um, some, some athletes have direct paths to the Olympics but mine seems to be a bit more of a, um, a scenic route. <laughs> 
<laughs> I hope you're enjoying the view on the way. So, so what is it like then to have another opportunity present itself in the form of kite foiling? Yeah, it's um, it's actually really amazing. Um, when I started foiling uh, a couple of years ago, I had, didn't have even the slightest thought that it would kind of lead to another Olympic campaign. But um, just the way that uh, everything worked out and was timed, um, I kind of yeah arrived where I to the point where I had started doing a little bit of racing for fun and I had got reasonably competent competent on a foil and then I thought wow it's gone Olympic again I should just um just go for it so it's yeah it's absolutely amazing to be given kind of another shot at it and I think it's really cool to come back um with kind of a different perspective and at a different stage where it's um you know you still it's a very firm goal and it's something that you work really hard for but you have a bit more perspective in your life because you're got other things going on not just um not just the one goal do you talk about the scenic route this journey of yours do you think it makes you hungrier to achieve that goal if, if that's possible oh definitely um i think you you look back at all the other times that maybe you had missed an opportunity or you could have done something differently or you perhaps weren't as hungry the last time or you you gave up too easily and you kind of have learned from those things and I think you're probably a bit better at motivating yourself and, um, yeah, coming at it really hungry. <laughs> well, I think it'd be really interesting to, um, to e explore this journey of yours to this point because it's, uh, it's a very interesting one filled with a number of highs and, and just as many lows. Um, I'm also keen uh, to talk about how you're chasing this as a young mother and perhaps this is probably a good place to start. Um, so you've got two daughters, both under five, I think. Yes, and my oldest was turned five a couple of weeks ago, so we're just navigating the start of school. Exciting. Yeah. So you also often use the hashtag foilmum on your Instagram posts, and you've talked about heading out to training at 8 o'clock at night. So how hard is it to be a high-performance athlete and a mother of young children? Um, it's, it's pretty challenging. Um, I think that... Probably the way that you you structure your training and structure um, your day and your life is probably a lot more regimented, and there's not as much room for flexibility. Um, you know, school finishes at three, so you've got to be there to pick up, and I pick them up at that time. So um, you just have to make it work, and I think you become a lot more uh, efficient with your time, and not you know hanging around at the yacht club for half an hour after after training, chatting to everyone. And so it's kind of, we do debriefs um, by phone or later on or, you know, the next day rather than, uh, you know, mincing off at the end of <laughs> at the end of training. And um, yeah, I guess everything's a lot more regimented and just a slightly different, slightly different way of, of training. D did you have misgivings about giving the Olympics another shot um, when the idea of kite falling joining the program was talked about and I guess what sort of convinced you to try? Yeah I mean when I kind of thought oh this is a possibility I actually had a two and a three-year-old at the time and I just remember thinking like it's something that I want to do and it's something I've always wanted to do but um, you what are you thinking you idiot <laughs> how can you possibly do an Olympic campaign with you know under what three-year-old a two-year-old and a three-year-old but um, then um, you know you I, then I looked at the problem from the other side and I thought, well, how can I make it happen? Um, what do I need to do? What, you know, sorting out finances, sorting out childcare, sorting out training time, sorting out training partners. And then when I looked at it from the other side, I kind of saw a little glimmer of actually maybe this is possible. And I kind of just started off with the goal of, okay, well, I'll train really hard for a year and then I'll go to my first world championships and see what happens. And if it ends up that um, I'm, I'm not, not any good, then that's okay. I can just kind of move on and make it more of a hobby. And if it ends up that I'm doing okay, then maybe it can turn into something else. So, um, yeah, it did seem pretty crazy at the beginning, but um, it's kind of just evolved into into something else, <laughs> something pretty cool. So I read somewhere that you thought it was almost an advantage um, being a mum. Why did you think that? Oh, because mums are so tough. <laughs> you, um, you know about you know, getting three hours sleep and having to get up and still function as a human being. And when you've got children, um, you could might have a stomach bug or you could be deathly sick, but they don't care. You've still got to get up and do your job. So I think um, 
having that attitude and I'm sure the mums out there will not that <laughs> not that there's probably that many in um you know professional sailing but um yeah all the mums out there will know what I mean when when you kind of say that it makes you a bit tougher and when you think oh I'm a bit tired I'm a bit hungry I'm a bit sore it's um you know you just know how to push through that barrier are there any, are you aware of any other mums uh, on the start line in the kite falling circuit? <laughs> no, they're all uh, a few years my junior, but um, no, they're not. There's not any others. <laughs> Actually, no, I lie. I lie. There are two others, but they're um, kind of a little older. They're in their forties, but yeah, they they do pretty well as well. Their kids are a little older though. Is that a source of pride though for you? Um, I think it's just something that I. I feel like um, if you've grown up sailing your whole life and you um, you love sailing and you've dedicated a really big part of your life to being the best that you can, it's not like that all just goes away when you've had children. So um, I think it's kind of almost just a little break, just like any professional career person would take and then you come back at it. So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of proud that I've managed to get back into it, but I'm also very aware that um, – it's a pretty hard thing to do and I have a really amazing support network around me um, to enable me to do it. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of proud of proud of my family that's for supporting me so much and I hope that um, I can inspire my girls to just chase their dreams and not let people tell you that you can't do something because you're in a certain situation. You just make it work for you. Talk, talk to me a little bit about your support network because um, who are your principal babysitters I guess is where I'm going <laughs> yeah so um my parents are absolutely amazing they um have the girls a couple of days a week um every week so um that's been um yeah something that my parents have been super supportive of and um especially dad uh yeah always driving it he's his favorite line is um that you're old for a bloody long time so uh you know don't waste any opportunities and he's very um very supportive and always wants me to be out training and and racing and overseas so yeah mum and dad have been amazing and then um my husband is an absolute champion Chris he um is happy you know to take on the girls on weekends um and then takes them on usually by himself when I go away for like two or three weeks competing um yeah and then my mother and father-in-law also do a lot of babysitting and then yeah we have um great great childcare and kindy so yeah I have a whole group of people that are supporting me to get out in the water and train and race and yeah it's really amazing. So your dad of course uh, is none other than two-time Olympic medalist Rex Sellers who won gold in the tornado with Chris Timms at the 1984 Olympics and then I think backed it up with silver four years later. Um, so what were your early memories of your dad and his sailing? Um, usually standing around a boat park and him talking and talking and me wanting to go home. But, um, <laughs> it's, um, I think it's probably something that a lot of sailing kids experience, um, being stuck in boat parks and being bored. But that's kind of what I remember from early racing. But then when you're a little older, you become a bit more aware that, oh, dad's kind of, kind of a big deal. So, um, yeah. And then I can also remember, um, you know, seeing him with his medals and, um, yeah, it was as soon as I had kind of an awareness of that, it was probably something that I knew I wanted to do. Um, and I probably had a, uh, an awareness of Olympics and what medals meant much earlier than most kids. So I can remember kind of thinking, oh, I want to go to the Olympics and win a medal, you know, before I went to school. So it's kind of um, been a very long-term dream <laughs> in that sense. Although I guess at that age, you don't really know what it means or what it requires. To what? Just, just briefly, talk to me about your, I guess, upbringing and, and your journey through, say, the classes as a junior. I'm, I'm guessing it's the usual OptiPs, was it? Yeah, I did um, OptiS. Uh, yeah, from maybe around age eight or nine, um, and I sailed them right through to when I was uh, fourteen, fifteen, and then I had the kind of the option to go through a traditional um, sailing pathway with peas and starlings and then on to a boat class but actually when I was uh, 14 I started getting lessons um, windsurfing on Lake Pupogi and decided to go windsurfing relatively early so um, yeah started competing as a windsurfer when I was 15 and that's how what that's kind of how it all started in that side. 
So I remember seeing somewhere that you might actually not have been really enjoying your sailing as a teenager. Was was that correct? Yeah, I think um, I was probably getting to the end of my opties um, and I really enjoyed the racing, but I wasn't particularly enjoying actually being in the boat um, sailing. And so I guess mum and dad uh, thought they would try and introduce me to a class that might get me a bit more interested again. Yeah, so it was. Um, that's kind of how they guided me into windsurfing. Was there any sort of disadvantage in your own sailing because you were Rex Seller's daughter? Um, I think especially uh, when I was sailing um, as an opti kid, uh, everyone kind of knows who your dad is and it makes you feel like there's a huge expectation on you to, to do well. Um, yeah, so I guess in that sense um, there's no kind of, uh, no, no hiding from that, but um, yeah, if in some ways maybe it motivates you as well. I don't know. <laughs> you feel like you feel like you have to be good even when you turn up on your first day. Um, but yeah, when I moved into windsurfing, um, it was all kind of just a big family, and you had you know Barbara Kendall and Aaron McIntosh and Bruce Kendall and Tom Ashley and all these amazing windsurfers all just at the yacht club training with you every session. So you know, having someone in your family that was a medalist really wasn't a big deal because there were lots of medalists around and they were just kind of friends with everyone. So that was actually really cool once I moved to windsurfing. Did you see then a future in that class for you, an Olympic future? Yes, it's definitely inspiring to have that much success around. Um, yeah, and I guess the time that I um, kind of really got into my windsurfing was when we had a really amazing recent history of um of windsurfers so yeah it was very cool um you must have enjoyed some early success in your windsurfing career because you went to your first world championships i think when you were 17 um to what was that experience like for you um yeah it was it was actually really fun um and just amazing to yeah, be a part of such a big event and it was actually the first year that the RSX class was um, Olympic so it was uh, there was no qualifying or anything it was open so there was just a ridiculous amount of competitors um, I remember it being massive and quite daunting but um, yeah I think it definitely makes you hungry to go in um, to get out there and, and make your way through the fleet and get to the front. <laughs> Do you remember how you well you went in those those first worlds? Well, I have no idea. I remember it probably wasn't that well because it was at Lake Garda, which was really windy, and I was more of a, a light wind specialist um, earlier in my windsurfing. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it went that well to start with. But um, one thing I do remember about my uh, windsurfing in New Zealand, um, on light days I was always really good. And, you know, at nationals and stuff, if there was a light day, I would be getting firsts and seconds against the adults. Um, and then the breeze would come in and, and I would be out the back door. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was yeah, pretty exciting early on. What, what would you do to try to improve your skills, I guess, in heavy weather? And, and you know, was there anything that you could do off the water as well to improve your strength? Um, yeah, so I guess um, fitness and strength, a little bit of gym work, um, yeah, and I, I think a lot of it was just technique because I was quite a light. Obviously, being so young, I was still pretty light um, and not that strong. So just trying to get stronger and and work on work on my technique uh, to get better. But as I kind of found out pretty quickly, um, it, I probably pushed a bit, a bit too hard, a bit too early, and ended up with quite a few injuries, including th three shoulder reconstructions. Um, so you know, what was the background, I guess, to all of that? Um, well, I actually had my first uh, dislocation at my first Youth Worlds, I think, when I was that, that same year that I went to my first World Championships. I also went to my first Youth Worlds when I was 17 and, um, yeah, dislocated my shoulder while I was at the Youth Worlds. Um, I actually think I was coming third on, and then we had the lay day and the dislocation wasn't actually on the water. It was um, just mucking around at the, at the hotel on the lay day and I dislocated my shoulder and then, um, yeah completed the event but was in quite a lot of pain and um yeah came home and it was kind of uh continuously dislocating so had to go and have a surgery um and then yeah probably was in a bit of a rush to come back uh and get back on the water and didn't rehab 
well enough and then dislocated it again, I think, the next year. So it was a bit of an ongoing saga after that. So did it ever feel like that maybe it was just too hard or, or something that your body just wasn't made to do? Um, I think at the time I was pretty motivated to um, to get better and very committed to the windsurfing. But now when I look back, I think that, yeah, maybe after those first couple of dislocations, um, my shoulders probably weren't going to, weren't going to make it and it would have been pretty hard to manage that injury um you know to continue right through an olympic campaign so um now in hindsight i'm very glad that um it did it has all turned out with kiting because that's um not so much upper body base and pretty much 90 percent leg based so i actually um, don't have very much load on my shoulder at all while i'm kiting so it doesn't affect you at all these days no not at all i'm very thankful but it doesn't yeah <laughs> So let, let just look at your sort of, I guess, Olympic, uh, 2012 Olympic sort of progression. You know, how realistic was it um, at this stage? Um, I guess there were quite a few New Zealand girls uh, that were of a very similar level. Um, and we were all kind of hovering around that gold fleet, silver fleet margin in the two years before, the, before uh, London, the London Games. And... Um, I guess my disadvantage was that I was kept getting injured. So I was almost having like a year on, a year off, a year on, a year off. Um, and so it was a really tricky time for me. And I was actually studying at the same time as well. Um, but, you know, I would still go to events and get pretty good results um, and be footing it with the other New Zealand girls. Um, so I think it was probably a reasonable chance, but um, in the end it kind of wasn't meant to be. And I think probably the injuries got got the better of me at that time. And, um, yeah, in the end, no one ended up getting selected um, for London. So, And how did you react to that? Um, I mean, at the time, um, I think uh, I had already dropped out. When did I? I think I dropped out uh, early in 2012. So the last selection was between um, Steph Williams and uh, Natalia um, with the two New Zealand girls still going for it. So I guess when it, the announcement was made that no one was going to get selected, I had kind of already dropped out of a selection. So, um, yeah, you kind of are not so invested at that stage. But, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that at the time you're really devastated and it seems like kind of the world is ending because everything you've worked for hasn't worked out. But um, everything's always better in hindsight. <laughs> you, can, um, you can pick holes in it and look at what you learned from it and try and get better. So where was your head then at it, I guess, around trying to go again for Rio in 2016? Um, well, actually, not long after um, the announcement that no New Zealand girls were being selected for the Games, um, windsurfing actually got uh, eliminated from the Olympics and replaced with uh, kite surfing. It wasn't the foiling kiting that we're doing now, but it was on kind of a, a formula board, so wasn't foiling. Um, and I kind of thought, oh, this is an amazing opportunity. Um, it's going to be a class that maybe I can, you know, have a go at. So I went on the express, express kite surfing course and, um, yeah, I learned to kite and race on a kite board within about six months and then went to the, um, the kite surfing worlds and actually got 10th at those, at those worlds, which was my first kite surfing worlds. And then, um, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that was kind of the good start for, I guess, the Rio campaign. But then I think, yeah, in 2013, um, the decision got overturned and, um, yeah, ended back in, back up in the same position um, in a class that wasn't going to the Olympics and <laughs> not really um, any, any way forward, unfortunately, that time. Yeah, well, you've encapsulated quite a lot in a short space of time there. So I'm just going to pick up on a couple of those things. Um, just before, I guess, the announcement um, that kiteboarding was going to come in and windsurfing was going out, um, you engaged with um, Barbara Kendall, three-time Olympic medalist in windsurfing, obviously. Um, I think in planning for Rio, do you remember what her advice was to you? Yeah, I just remember her um, being really encouraging and really supportive and um, just telling me to go for it, basically, and just saying that, um, you know, it's one of those things that not everything works out the first time and you just have to um, make a plan and, and learn from everything that's um, that's happened in the previous four years and, yeah, keep moving forward. So 
um, yeah, I did actually sit down and make a plan with her, which, yeah, it's, it's, um, it all seems like such a long time ago now, but, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Um, she, I'm, you know, she can be quite, I'm sure be quite inspirational and those sorts of things. And that advice still applies to today, really. Um, so you talked about you decided to give kiting a go. Um, what did you do to get up to speed? Um, so I went and got some lessons and I think I did about uh, a month of kiting lessons. And then I um, booked a trip to Aitutaki in the Cook Islands and uh, did three weeks there. And it's an amazing spot, warm and windy every day. And, you know, you kite for three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon. And, yeah, just really focused on getting my skills up. So I went away, you know, hardly being able to kite and came back um, being able to do lots of maneuvers and pretty much ready to get on a race board. So within the space of um, less than two months, I'd gone from not knowing how to kite to, um, yeah, on the on the new Olympic equipment. Sounds like just the same sort of existence you have now, right? You know, three hours of <laughs> training in the morning, three in the afternoon, no care in the world, nice and warm. Yeah, <laughs> not quite, but <laughs> that would make life much easier. <laughs> Did it help having a windsurfing background? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I guess the big advantage was that I was just trying to master um, the new class rather than trying to master racing. Um, so I already knew how to race and the style of racing that was required, but I just needed to um, figure out how to control yeah, a new a new class. So, um, yeah, it was uh, very much just learning how to kite. And then once I had got the kiting under control, then um, everything else fell into place. And so I turned up to a, an event and I knew exactly what to do. Now, you mentioned the 10th at your first Kiting World Champs. Just, just where were they? Tell me about that experience. Um, they were in uh, Sardinia, um, Italy, um, uh, yeah, in 2012. Yeah, it was that was a very similar situation where it was an open event and I think they had 150 riders and 60 of them were women, so it was a really huge women's fleet. Um, and there were quite a few uh, riders that were also uh, windsurfers that had done the same thing as me and <clears throat> really quickly transferred over to kiting and then there were also a lot of freestyle kiters and people that had also been on the racing scene for quite a while yeah so it was a really interesting event and yeah really quite competitive but um and it all worked out really well for me and ended up being um yeah quite a successful one unexpectedly did you sort of come away from that event then thinking, you know, this is a sport that I can actually improve quickly at, do well at, and maybe even not just get to Rio, but maybe win a medal in Rio? Oh, definitely. Um, when I look at it now, um, maybe I have, I'm, I'm more suited to kite surfing than I ever was to windsurfing because I always seem to be able to pick it up. Um, a bit easier and, and understand it easier and I think yeah at the time if you go to your first event and you come away with a result like that it's pretty encouraging and um, you always come away with your head full of all the next things to work on and and where you're going next. And then though the IOC just pulled that board away from underneath your feet and decided to reinstate windsurfing in, in Rio what was your reaction when you heard that? <laughs> I remember um my husband, who was a boyfriend then, Chris, um, just looking at, at some news on his phone um, one morning and he kind of said to me, oh, you know, windsurfing's back in the Olympics. And I remember laughing at him and saying, you know, like, what are you talking about? That's um, that's crazy. And then, yeah, him him kind of being like, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. And just being absolutely devastated. I think um, when, when it kind of all finished with windsurfing, um, Earlier in 2012, it was all kind of um, a slow process with selection and then dropping out of um, the contention of selection. So it wasn't such a blow. But um, when you kind of have had such a great result and you're very much into a new class and then um, you find out that it's that it's not happening anymore, it's yeah, much more of a blow and probably a lot more devastating. Did you pack it away and then, you know, did you – even think about maybe trying to give windsurfing another go and see if you could recapture, I guess, that form of old? Um, I did. I thought about um, what I wanted to do and whether windsurfing would be another viable option. But, I mean, at that point, um, 
I was kind of hooked on kiting, to be honest. Um, I love the racing and I love the format um, and I love the speed. And so I kind of just decided that I would actually continue kiting. So I did actually, yeah, continue kiting right until um, 2014. Did you even get the old windsurfer out and give it a go? <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, the first time I um, stepped back onto a windsurfer was about five years later when I was coaching some kids. Um, and I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't actually been on a windsurfer for about five years. Well, now it's kind of wind, wind foiling, isn't it? So it's um, completely different now too. Um, what, what did you think you would do at this stage? And uh, mostly athletically, but, you know, in life as well. Yeah, so um, at that stage I had um, graduated with um, a degree in podiatry and I had kind of been working part-time um, with that while doing my kiting. Um, so I kind of, I guess, get up to have a bit more of a professional career and then at that time um, got engaged and got married. And, I, yeah, so I kind of thought I would just focus on my um, career for the meantime um, and, yeah, kind of put that whole part I had kind of resigned myself to the fact that there probably wasn't going to be an Olympics in the future and that most of my yeah sailing would just kind of be recreational and for fun and something that I just yeah enjoyed and did on the weekends um yeah and then you know life moved on and um had my two children and yeah didn't really think about it again (laughs) was um you talked about um, you'd resigned yourself to that fact. Were you comfortable with that or did you feel like there was a bit of a hole in your life at that stage? Um, I think I was I was happy with what I was doing um, because I had like I knew at the time that I I'd given it a pretty good shot and um, you know for for all the champions that there are and medals that are won, there's hundreds of sailors with that same dream that are really talented, but the stars don't align and nothing, and it just doesn't work out for them. Um, So I kind of had thought that I would, I would be in that category and I was kind of happy with that. Um, Yeah. So I guess it's always something that's in the back of your mind, but there's not much you can do about it. So you just have to accept it. (laughs) And how much kiteboarding did you do at all during this time? Um, Well, yeah. So the year after it um, was, uh, back out of the Olympics of windsurfing was in, I actually went to another world champs um, in China um, and still competed um, at national events. Uh, yeah, so I actually did quite a lot of kiteboarding right up until um, I, right up until I had my children in, uh, yeah, 2015. So I was kiting, yeah, right the way through. And then you had the kids and it basically went in the cupboard? Uh, yeah, pretty much. It was just something that I did every so often or if we went away on holiday. <laughs> it, wasn't, um, it wasn't very regular. And then kite falling's kind of had this revolution, I guess. Um, what made you give it a go? Was it just, you know, the appeal of it and you just had to give it a, a whirl? Um, well, actually, my, my husband, Chris, he um, took up kite falling um, when the kids were really young, like, um, you know, just born. And that was kind of his um, getaway just because it's so easy that you can leave the house, go for an hour's kite and be back and you know, have had a really nice time out, but only be gone from the house for a couple of hours. So that was kind of his recreation time. And he bought himself quite a nice foil and some kites. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of his thing for, for a year or two. Um, and then, yeah, when we went away on holiday one year to Nelson, um, I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And I jumped on and got going on the foil and just, yeah, just absolutely loved it. And then, um, yeah, we made, we made a bit of a plan that we would, both have gear so we got gear for both of us so that we could both um compete in the weekends and do it for fun um and it kind of just grew from there do you remember that sensation when you were foiling for the first time (laughs) the one thing i remember is um popping up out of the water and it being really quiet you know there's no slapping of waves or sound it's quite surreal it's just absolutely silent so when did you first hear about the possibility of um kite falling being added to the Olympic program? Yeah, it was probably um, sometime in twenty, late 2017, early 2018. Um, and I was already kind of foiling, um, you know, on the weekends and at some national regattas by that stage. Yeah, and I kind of, at the beginning, I thought, oh, it, will, it may be added, it may not be, but I wasn't completely sold on the idea because I'd had quite a few experiences of um, classes 
being thrown out. So at that stage, I kind of just thought, I'll just see how, how good I can get in New Zealand. Um, yeah. And then I guess it was uh, pretty early on in 18, uh, in 18, in 2018, that it got uh, confirmed as an Olympic class. Um, well, it, it won its first vote to become Olympic class. And that's kind of, I guess, when I started paying a bit more attention, um, I kind of thought, oh, this is actually probably quite a cool goal to um, to try and work towards, you know, just get good at foiling and maybe go to a world championships and see how I go. Given that you'd been bitten a couple of times uh, when you dipped your toe into the water about the Olympics, were you kind of just trying to downplay any expectations and ambitions until anything was confirmed? Um, yeah, I think so. I think I kind of just thought, oh, that, that's really cool. But, you know, we just have to wait and see if it is actually <laughs> actually confirmed when you, um, you know, it's a quite a long process yeah. and usually there's about three um, world sailing meetings over a period of 18 months before a class can be um, instated as a an Olympic class. So it was very much kind of a waiting game. So through that whole process, yeah, it was kind of just wait and see. Just talk to me about the, the kite falling scene in New Zealand, you know, how big is it? Um, how reactive is it? Um, I would say it's quite small, but it's um, very active. And another thing that's really interesting about the scene is it's really spread over the country. Um, we have, yeah, a really good contingent in Northland, um, Tauranga, um, Raglan. I guess it is all North Island, mainly North Island for the racing, but um, everyone is very spread. So at our national championship, we usually get around 20 kiters. Um, and, yeah, we have a really good contingent um, in Auckland of about four or five regulars that will come out in multiple times a week um, to go racing. So it is relatively small, but um, the people that are doing it are pretty committed. You're head and shoulders ahead of any other female kiter in the country. So then how can you actually make it at an elite level? Um, well, the great thing about kiting is that um, you can just put on a, a different size kite and, um, you know, there's no reason why you can't be the same speed as the men. So I've actually been really lucky that I've just been training with um, training with the boys the whole time. So I'm usually chase, chasing people that are faster than me, which I think has definitely had a positive effect. So those boys are Lucas uh, Walton Kime and, and Sam Bullock, who's uh, top 20 in the world at um, the last World Champs. Um, so is it generally the three of you? How many more can, can or do join you? Um, yeah, so we've actually had um, a couple of um, youth guys in Auckland that have started to get really good, um, and they're getting pretty close to me now. So soon um, the group will, the group of kind of, I guess, uh, fast spoilers will be a bit better. Um, yeah, and then there's yeah a couple of guys in, like I say, Northland and um, Tauranga that are also kind of, I guess, in that faster group of riders. Now you'd sort of started to go uh, get active internationally, um, but COVID-19 has obviously curtailed any of that international competition for the foreseeable future. What did your program look like last year? Um, yeah, so last year it was yeah a world championship and then come home training and then another um, round of regattas. So we had the European championship and then the World Beach Games at the end of the year. Um yeah, so it was relatively busy. Um, I guess probably not busy in terms of other uh, New Zealand sailors that travel that uh, compete internationally. But um, I guess being a mum, I kind of, especially in that first year, I limited myself to three trips at three weeks long. I thought kind of any more than that um, might be a bit much, bit much for the family. So um, I guess as time goes on, um, I'll increase that. But I guess that's one major difference in my program compared to other other sailors as I have, I'm kind of trying to set it up so that it's most of the training is um, New Zealand based and then I go and compete overseas for short periods. Mm. So what was it like to get back on that circuit after a few years away? Um, it just uh, felt the same as always. I think um, <clears throat> you get to, an, a, to a venue and you kind of size up the competition and you, yeah, it just all slips back into place. Um, yeah, it was actually quite amazing how it felt like I'd never left. And, and you mentioned, you know, weighing it up with your, your family. Did it all work out? Everything, you know, the worry wasn't quite as much as you thought um, it was worth? <laughs> yeah, I think it um, definitely helped that uh, that Chris was at home with the girls and they had the support of my parents. So they're all people that they know really well and 
they have got one parent at home. So, um, yeah, I wasn't so much worried about them. It was more just um, you feel like I felt like I was missing out um, on all the stuff that was happening at home. So it was kind of a bit more of that rather than um, being so worried about them because I knew that they would be fine. But one of the worst things was actually um, it was um, my oldest daughter's fourth birthday the day before the World Championship. So there was no way I could I could have um, been there without missing the regatta so I actually wasn't at home for her birthday and I think there was a um a lot of mum guilt going on there not being at home for the birthday party <laughs> mm, I've been there on that one so I know that what that feels like um now the Paris Olympics will be mixed kite falling can you sort of explain uh what the format for that will be yeah so um it's the relay um and the male does one lap and then the female does one lap and they at this stage, um, the race committee are telling us whether it's a female start or a male start, but um, it, there is our talks at the moment about um, whether they just mix it up and the different teams can decide which gender starts first. But basically it's um, one team member does a lap of the course and then there's a changeover zone and once the first competitor has crossed the finish line, the second competitor can enter the changeover zone and do a second lap and finish the race. And how long do races typically last? Uh, between six and eight minutes for the whole race. So one mistake and it's a bit toast really, isn't it? Yeah, so it's um, not so tactical compared to other sailing in terms of wind shifts, um, but incredibly tactical. Um, you know, your start is absolutely everything and um, – winning um, inside rights and uh, rights at the top mark and, you know, being the first to jibe downwind, it's really, really tactical, um, probably more than any other class because the stakes are so high. If you make a mistake, that's it's game over. Now, you and Lucas finished third at last year's uh, European Champs. Um, how significant was that result? Um, I think it was uh, really good for both of us because it kind of showed us that we do have potential. Um and we can get on the podium. And at the time, both of us kind of thought it wasn't um, wasn't our best performance. So um, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can keep improving on that result. Did you think it was something that was achievable as you headed into that competition? Well, I mean, uh, the class is changing so quickly at the moment and the competitors um, are, are, are evolving so quickly that you just kind of you come to events and if you haven't raced against someone in six months, you have no idea where you're going to sit in the fleet against them. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we turned up and we just had no idea how we were going to go. So it was a really pleasant surprise to come away with such a good result. And how many teams are on the race course? And, is, you know, do you have round robins and knockouts and all that sort of thing? <clears throat> yeah, so um, the first, uh, I guess, phase of racing is um, they have 10 teams on the race course at one time. And um, then you they usually have quite a few heats of the um, of the racing. And then um, after the first wave of heats, um, the top two from each 10-team heat get uh, progressed to the semifinals. And then from the semifinals, um, it's a knockout of four teams to two teams. And then in the final, there's the final four teams. And is it only one race or do you have a, you know, a series like five, seven races and you drop one and the in the uh heats at the beginning there's quite a few races um i think up to 12 and then for semi-finals and finals um there's three races in each round that's quite a lot of um intense racing in a short period of time yeah so it's because all the races are so short we can fit a lot of races into a day so what then would your year have looked like in, in 2020 if COVID-19 hadn't read its head? Um, yeah, so I actually had some um, some training in Hawaii lined up for um, for March with um, Daniela Moroz, the world champ, um, for a few weeks, uh, which all had to get cancelled, which was, yeah, a bit gutting, partly because I got to train with Daniela, but also because it was in Hawaii, which is, <laughs> you know, it's not very often we get to go to really nice places, but that was one of them. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, looking at maybe European championship, uh, maybe around, around this time, around June. And then, um, we've, we have our, uh, individual world championship in China in September and the mixed 
World Championship um, in Italy in October. So I guess for us, um, everything's off this year. So it's all kind of just a re- big readjustment. So what does that what does that mean? You know, you obviously would have had a an enforced break due to the to the lockdown. Um, but now that you're back on the water, you know, what have you been able to do to keep sort of developing in the sport and what can, you know, what sort of domestically can be arranged? Yeah, um, so we are very lucky we've got a bit of um coaching at the moment and uh yeah, we're just really focusing um on that kind of teams racing short course. Uh, tactical kind of racing that you can still simulate it with very few people, which is very lucky. Um, and yeah, working a lot on just having perfect um, maneuvers and there's a lot really to work on at home. Um, and I guess it's just, everyone's kind of doing the same thing in their own countries. I guess our disadvantage is that we have such a small team that we don't have these big teams where other teams that have more competitors will probably have, a pretty high quality of, of training, but um, yeah, we think we can make it work here with just the just the few riders that we have. What about if an Australasian bubble was opened up? Would that help? Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's um, a great team of kiters in Australia, so we are hoping we've got some plans to do um, a few training camps across the Tasman, and then for them to come uh, in December, and then for the Australians to come back and train with us in January. So we're hoping that we can make that happen by December. Now, now kiting is obviously quite a, a a young sport in this country so what would I guess would you say to anyone out there contemplating giving it a go um I would say uh just go out and and get some basic lessons to start with um I think the biggest mistake people make is they buy themselves some gear and they try and get a friend to teach them or they just try and figure it out themselves and um the best thing to do is actually just get some lessons because you waste a lot of time and usually break your gear and injure yourself if you're just trying to muck around with a kite. Um, yeah, so go and get some lessons and then just go out and have a lot of fun with it. And, yeah, it, who, who knows where it will take you. There's so many pathways to go down, whether it be wave kiting or foil kiting. It's just a really amazing sport. Has a friend asked you to coach them? <laughs> I actually haven't had too many people ask me. I've had people kind of ask about what to do, but um, I always just tell everyone to get lessons straight away because, yeah, it's just <laughs> it's just better to, to do it that way. You're too, you're too busy anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to get them to book it six months in advance. <laughs> is it hard to learn? Uh, learning to kite surf on a twin tip is actually pretty easy um, and quite a quick process. Um, but for us, we find people learn to go on twin tip, um, which is just the flat board without any foil. Um, and they before you move on to a foiling kite board, you need to be a very competent twin tipper. Um, and have quite a lot of time under your belt just with your kite management skills. So from the time you tell someone, you know, you want to get into kiting, great, go and get your lessons and and, and get going um, to the time that they're actually ready to try a foil is probably a minimum of a year. So um, that's why it's kind of taking us so long to build up our numbers because even people that we talked to, you know, six months ago about um, getting into kiting and getting into foiling um, – still won't be ready to even try a foil probably for at least six months. I guess we have a few impatient people out there, aren't there? Um, <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Um, uh, yeah, requires consistent effort rather than something that you can just jump into. Well, maybe as a way to kind of keep uh, tempting them, how fast can you go when you're kite foiling? <laughs> um, so this year... Um, at the bridge to bridge race um, in San Francisco, I think the uh, the top speed recorded was thirty nine point nine knots. Impressive. So that's nearly nearly eighty k. Um, so does it hurt then when you crash? Um, it does, but we are wearing impact vests and helmets, so it kind of does take a bit of the sting out of it. But um, yeah, I guess uh, while you're learning and there's a few crashes, you can expect uh, to come home with a bit of whiplash sometimes. <laughs> Do a bit of speed testing with uh, Emirates Team New Zealand and their flying manahai, do you? Yep, definitely. <laughs> I think um, earlier on when they were still uh, gearing up, we uh, we thought we were faster, but now they've definitely eclipsed us. <laughs> about the only ones who can get a close-up view of, of how they're going, actually, without having a monster 
outboard on the back of a boat, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, Justine, it's been great to have you on. Um, but before I let you go, um, I have one question that I always ask every guest, uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your worst wipeout ever? Oh, my worst wipeout? <laughs> um, actually, it happened uh, not too long ago, probably about three months ago. And I was um, out foiling with Sam and Lucas um, next to Rangitoto. And we were in a lineup, all of us absolutely gunning for it. And those boys are usually a little bit faster than me, but I was I was having a good day. And I was determined I was going to get in front of them. And I was kind of winning the lineup. And I pushed it so hard that I just completely ejected from my board. And um, my kite went straight up and I went straight up too. And I was probably about, uh, I want to say, easily 10 to 15 meters in the air <laughs> flying above everyone and everything um yeah swinging belief pendulum penduluming belief my kite and then yeah came down with a great crash into the water so it was a pretty spectacular crash <laughs> so you're a super mum uh, on many levels then hey yeah well and the best thing is um hearing the boys laughing below me <laughs> as I'm coming back down Hopefully checking that you're all right as well. <laughs> yeah, I think they can see that I was coming down relatively slowly, so it, um, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> nice. Hey, as I say, look, great to have you on. Uh, it's been a really interesting discussion about your background, and I guess um, maybe it's something that other people can relate to. Um, so, look, all the best over the next little while. It's a bit uncertain, certainly, of the next few months, but... Um, You've got a you know four-year goal as opposed to maybe some who are a little bit more short-term. So hope that all goes well, and we certainly will be following your career over the next little while with some interest. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been great to be on, and yeah, hopefully um, we can get a few more people uh, kiting, but also those that uh, that thought that things that that weren't possible. Hopefully, I can show them that a few things uh, that you think are gone from your life maybe are possible. Good advice. Yeah. Well, that's it for another episode of Broad Reach Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you with another episode next Friday. Take care.